This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning, this is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and you're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be talking about an issue today that, uh, you know, is really one of the most common things, sort of categories that kids deal with and families deal with, and that's GI issues. All those sore tummies, all the constipation, diarrhea, throwing up, reflux, you name it, we're going to be tackling that today. So I'm sure there are our listeners out there who've been uh, struggling with this. We actually got an email we're going to uh, dive into in just a little bit. But if you have a question about any GI issues that are affecting your children or your family, you can give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six. Seven two seven four six four, or you can send us an email at kids and teens at mpbonline.org. So speaking of stomach issues, I hope everybody's recovering from all the uh, knots in the stomachs from the game last night and lack of sleep because that could certainly cause a lot of GI issues. Wow. What a what a night! Uh, I know, and all the kids. You know, I was a, the the dad that let uh, his kids. Actually, my younger one just opted to uh, to go to sleep. He had had enough uh, of uh, all the drama uh, at about ten ten thirty, I think, and uh, went to bed. But the oldest, I think, stayed up uh, a lot later than that. So GI issues, you know, this is one of the most common things we we uh, we hear as a complaint in the office, and sometimes in the hospital as well. In, uh, in kids and teens, and there's a lot of different GI problems. The GI system is a very complex one that helps us do a number of things. It helps with uh, nutrition, with the breakdown of, of foods uh, that we eat, and it pretty much covers everything from the mouth all the way down to the anus. So it's um, it's it's got a lot of stuff in there, a lot of things that could go wrong, uh, and uh, and it. There's a lot of things that can be confusing, too, particularly with younger kids that can be normal versus abnormal. There's so much variation from person to person with normal bowel habits, with some of the uh, you know common complaints. Reflux is a good one uh, that uh, that is so much different uh, depending on the person. So, you know, some of the most common things we see, reflux is probably the most common, uh, particularly in the younger ages. So less than a year of age, uh, that's something that we, uh, do. So a lot of families have a lot of problems dealing with, you know, you can tell the age of a child in most families by the furniture that they have in their living room. So if you have a new baby, uh, or, uh, you know, less than a year, maybe 18 months of age, if you look at everything in the in the living room, uh, it's either covered if it's nice, or it's really old with a lot of stains on it. And you can you know that's because babies reflux they they spit up. Uh, if you don't believe me and say, well, no, I don't think babies should spit up. Well, why do we have burp cloths on their shoulders? You know, that's that's a lot of a uh, lot of experience there with uh, with what normally happens. And then going from reflux to one in from one end of the spectrum all the way up to the other. So uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease is another term, or GERD. Um, that's more often used in the adult population. Uh, but really, all that means is that it's gotten to the point where there's a lot of problems. So it's not physiologic anymore, but it's gotten to the point where there are some problems. Diarrhea is another one too. Certainly, we have seasonal diarrhea, depending on what's uh, what viruses are out there, or sometimes what bacterial infection. 
infections. We have food poisoning that can cause diarrhea. There's uh, also some problems with uh, types of diarrhea that can uh, can be caused by uh, eating certain types of foods, food allergies or uh, food aversions. Um, all those kinds of things can cause diarrhea in kids. And most of the time it's self-limiting, but uh, particularly when it gets to be chronic, that needs to be looked at uh, a little bit closer. And on the under, other end of the spectrum of that, of course, is constipation. Uh, constipation really common uh, in our in our population. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later. And actually, our email has to deal with uh, chronic constipation issues. And then, uh, you know, there's other things that are a little bit worse than that. Inflammatory bowel disease is one of them. Malabsorption, where you're not absorbing all the nutrients that you need to. Uh, and then nutrition and obesity, particularly in the South and in Mississippi, we know we have uh, lots of issues, unfortunately, with our children about obesity and its effects on our kids and teens. And uh, certainly there are some things that you can do uh, to, uh, to uh, change that. Talking about GI issues this morning, and would love to hear from, uh, from you if you have any questions about the, the health of your family as it pertains to GI issues. You can give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. So let's say that the, you have a new baby and you bring them in for a visit, and usually that's uh, you know depending on what's going on, depending on the age that they're that they're at, you'll visit your doctor. Anywhere from three to five days after discharge, just for a weight check, maybe a check uh, if the bilirubin's up a little bit. Uh, and then, uh, you know, about two weeks later is your next big visit. So with those visits, it's very common to have different patterns, both of feeding and your pediatrician, your doctor should be asking you. They're going to ask you some questions about what type of formula that you're using or breastfeeding, um, how the baby feeds. Uh, you know, if they're breastfeeding, are they latching on like they're supposed to? Are you having good milk let down? Uh, are they feeding completely? Is your baby an aggressive feeder? Are they sort of lazy feeders? How often in between feedings are they going? Uh, some of the initiators of that, do you have to wake them up to feed them at night, you know, after three or four hours, or are you uh, letting them uh, sleep for longer periods of time? All those patterns are important to ensure that your child gets the adequate nutrition that they need for normal growth and development. So there's a lot of calories that are being uh, taken in by the, by the baby in, in that neonatal period right after birth. Um, and in the months following that, that really are key to their future growth and development. And it can affect them the rest of their life if there are problems, uh, if either if they're not getting enough calories in what they're, they're taking in. So that might be a problem with the volume that they're actually getting. Or in some circumstances, it might mean that they're not metabolizing those foods correctly, or they might have a, a, you know, a hidden problem with metabolism of those substances, either in their GI tract, maybe a little bit different, may have some deficiencies of some of the things that should normally be there. Um, so those can certainly affect growth and development uh, over time. And then on the other end of that, one of the things we ask about is stooling patterns. 
so how often are you changing a diaper? Uh, not just with stool, but also with urine too. Uh, do they have you know multiple stools a day, or they just have one stool a day? And the stool portion of that, you know, there's two age ranges I think about uh, where people really fixate on stool. One is the neonatal period, and the other is in the geriatric population. So we're really interested in stool in both of those age groups. Well, with with, uh, neonates, when you come home from the hospital, it really depends on a number of things. One of the most common things that can change stool patterns is uh, the type of formula versus uh, breastfeeding. So... Uh, with breast milk, ten, you tend to have uh, less volume to the stool, uh, and it tends to be a little bit watery. It's very uncommon to have constipation or hard stools uh, if your baby is being breastfed. That's actually one of the, you know, one of the uh, minor red flags that we look for if your baby's being breastfed exclusively uh, and they're having hard stools. Then there might be another uh, another thing that your physician might need to uh, to look at to. Uh, to investigate that. So, so those are some of the things that you'd want to look for. You know, if you, if you have formula fed babies, they tend to have a stool about, uh, just about with every feeding. They don't have to have it with, with every single one, but on average, they'll have about five to six stools a day. And they tend to be particularly right after birth up until a couple of months of age, less volume to them, uh, with, you know, as what you would think an older child would have, of course. Uh, but they need to be sort of formed and, uh, and we, Sometimes we'll say that they're sort of seedy. They look like sort of seeds to them. Uh, but that can be that can be varied uh, from child to child. We're talking about GI issues this morning, so you can give us a call with any kind of questions you might have about the health of your children or your family by calling us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. So here's our, our email about constipation. So this is uh, Sarah who emailed us and said that um, she, had, uh, she had two, has two daughters that are now age five and seven. They've been healthy. They've been growing up without any serious illnesses. But since birth, they both suffered from chronic constipation. And in about 18 months, they were diagnosed with the problem and started on a medication called Miralax uh, that they take once a day ever since then. They've tried to encourage healthy eating with increased fiber in the food. But uh, it's a struggle to get them, like other kids, to eat uh, as healthily as they should. Uh, A steady and constant dosing of the Miralax keeps everything regular with daily bowel movements that are soft. But if they they change that schedule or skip any doses, they have tummy aches and hard stools uh, and less frequent uh, stools with red, inflamed, and sore bottoms. She says, is this just a part of our lives that we're forever going to have to deal with, uh, trying our best to stay on a regular schedule with the laxative doses, or is there any hope of being able to create a natural, normal rhythm with diet and healthy lifestyles? Is there anything else we can do about this issue? Should we be concerned about allergies that are causing it, or is there any other information that we can, uh, that we can get to manage this condition? 
So again, this is a very common, uh, very common issue with constipation. Generally speaking, there, there are three age groups where they develop constipation. And the first is when they're uh, weaned off of formula or uh, breast milk. Uh, that's a common time when stool patterns change because of the types of foods that kids are eating. Uh, the second one is about, you know, about uh, toilet training time. So whatever age for your child, you know, generally speaking, around 18, to tw- to, uh, to 18 months to two years, maybe a little bit later than that. Uh, that's another peak when uh, you have constipation constipation problems. And then uh, it's school age, so when they go to school. And a lot of these things are tied to social behaviors. If you think about how normal stooling patterns work, uh, your your large intestine generally has a couple of different things it does. Its main job is a really storage. So it's going to store liquid stool, and while it's storing it, it absorbs water back into the body so that we don't require as much water uh, uh, to drink during the day. And that results in a firm, hard stool. The longer that, that liquid stool stays in the large intestine, uh, the, the harder it gets because it continues to reabsorb water from it. And what generally happens early on is, uh, as you know, I mean, uh, most people are able to control their bowel movements when they're going to have them so that they can, uh, you know, once you get that about once a day with an older child or an adult, you get an urge uh, that that large intestine needs to empty. And uh, you have the voluntary control at that point, whether to evacuate that whenever it's socially acceptable to do that uh, or not. And Usually what happens with younger kids is they have a hard stool uh, that they've delayed uh, going to the restroom for whatever reason. Once they have that hard stool, it, uh, it causes a lot of pain when they have it. Uh, and the next time they have that impulse to, uh, to evacuate their colon, uh, as far as that child is concerned, nothing good ever came out of their bottom. That's what they're thinking. So what do they do? Same thing you or I do as adults. If we you know, are in a busy situation and we feel that urge, we delay it. And the longer you delay that, the more insensitive you are to that impulse. And, of course, that stool sits there. It gets harder and harder the longer it stays in the colon. So generally speaking, the way that we deal with this is to give something like Miralax. Miralax is a substance that uh, it, it keeps water in the stool, so it, you don't absorb it. It's, uh, it you know, you, none of the medication gets into your body. It just helps to, uh, to uh, keep that water in the stool itself so that the small intestine doesn't absorb it back uh, into the body. And that works really well. Um, again, it's pretty safe. Yeah, this is something you can get over the counter. However, if your child is particularly if they're less than a year of age, I would say probably less than eighteen to uh, two, eighteen months to two years of age, you really need to consult your physician about that. But definitely, if they're less than a year of age, but it is pretty safe to give that. You can mix it in with with any substance. Um, other things do work. Increased water intake during the day uh, will help to keep that stool from drying out too much. Uh, and increased fiber, uh, which just makes that stool transit faster through the colon. Now, in this family, uh, constipation does, uh, you know, it does run in families. And it looks like, Sarah, in your case, you got two kids with it. It sounds like you're doing all the right things with the bowel regimen. 
There are some physiologic problems, neurologic problems that sometimes get missed and can go on for decades sometimes before you realize it. So those nerves that control the movement of stool through the colon sometimes can be, uh, you can have them sort of miswired or, or rewired differently. Um, if, if it's really bad, those kids usually present with problems of stooling, generally speaking right after birth, but that tend to be more severe. If Miralax is working, I would say just stick with that. As they get older, uh, you know, up into later teens or even into adulthood, they may be able to come off of that, particularly if they're able to increase the amount of fiber in their diet. But it sounds like this is what we call functional constipation. And Miralax, again, very safe to take that. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to be absorbed in their body. Uh, very little risk, uh, even if they're taking other things, that that might interfere with anything. So, unfortunately, I think you're stuck with that right now. But I would, uh, I would, uh, you know, check out a, a pediatric gastroenterologist. Though there may be some other things that you can do in the meantime. So, thank you, Sarah, for sending us that sending us that email. Let's go to Adam and Pass Christian. Good morning, Adam. Up, oh, just a second. Good morning, Adam. Hey, good morning. How are you today? Good. Thanks for calling. This may be a little off topic, but it seemed appropriate to call since we were on our way to meet with a surgeon. My wife was experiencing acid reflux. She's 32 and also severe constipation. Well, the doctor diagnosed her with what is called a porcelain gallbladder. It's hardened and can be precancerous or cancerous. There's a small percentage of that. The surgeon's going to decide today whether to take it out orthoscopically in pieces or as a whole. So the if it is cancerous, it won't spread. What would your opinion be on breaking that up and taking it out as opposed to taking it out whole? Yeah, Adam, you outlined sort of what the risks are with the porcelain uh, gallbladder. Uh, so the gallbladder is a, a storage sac that sits just below the liver, and it helps to uh, to uh, as a storage uh, mechanism for bile uh, that the liver produces, and uh, and that bile is secreted into the intestines intermittently. Um, so when that, and that sacs, usually it's pretty soft, it's distensible, uh, but if it becomes very hard and you, they can image that with various ways, they can, you know, look at it by ultrasound or CT scan. Sometimes they'll do something called a HIDA scan to look and see how much material that the gallbladder is, uh, ejecting from itself. Well, and it is a risk factor for, you know, for certain types of, of cancer. Uh, you know, I would I would lean toward what your surgeon is is wanting to do. Uh, of course, the laparoscopic way that they do that is they put some small uh, incisions into the abdomen. Uh, they inflate the abdomen up with air, and then uh, you know they're able to to maneuver around with instruments. And the recovery time is less with that. Now, if you were dealing with just regular gallbladder issues or gallstones, that would be the way to go. However, in some instances, particularly if you're you know thinking about that this might be some risk of cancer. They may do uh, sort of an open uh, cholecystectomy where they take out the gallbladder, uh, just a fancy word for that. Um, but, um, you know, th- that would give them the best uh, option of what to do. So I, I would lean on there. You know, that's going to depend on what they saw on the scans, uh, what they think it is. You know, when they get in there, they may even want to start off laparoscopically and then open up later. Uh, but that a lot of that depends on what you see when you get in there and and the surgeon's level of comfort with, you know, 
know, being able to maneuver in small spaces if it's laparoscopically done. Uh, hopefully that'll turn out all right. Uh, prayers and thoughts go out to you and your wife as you undergo that. But uh, it sounds like the surgeons are, are thinking through it appropriately. We're talking about GI issues on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. So if you have any questions about uh, GI problems in your family, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can email us at kids and teens at mpbonline dot org. Let's go to Jennifer and Jackson. Good morning, Jennifer. Hi. Thank you for calling. Um, my question is uh, about my daughter's um, IBS. Okay. Um, she's always had issues. Had to be on special formula as a baby. Um, she's now 19 and this situation continues. And, uh, of course I, I lecture her about her water consumption and she's pretty good about fiber, but it's just been sort of a, a big problem her entire life. And I wanted to ask about other things we could do. I was listening with interest on, on your call where you were talking about Miralax earlier. Um, but I was also wondering about things like probiotics and, you know, I know some of the laxatives you shouldn't continue to use, but, you know, are some of them safer than others? You know, I'm basically just looking for little things we could possibly do to help her out. Sure. And if you don't mind me asking, how old is your daughter now? She's now 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, we've we've discussed this with doctors, and, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm blown off by them, but that doesn't mean that's true. We've always heard IBS. Her grandmother and I have had problems, but nobody has them like she does. And it just, it really gets to a point of constipation where it's I mean, really uncomfortable. Yeah. It's so I, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. And it's, uh, it is a, um, not too common in kids, but you can find it in kids and adolescents and in adults as well. Um, it has a couple of different forms, uh, just for, I know you're, you're, uh, Jennifer, you're very familiar with this, but just so uh, just uh, everybody else knows what we're talking about. It has a couple of different forms. One is, uh, predominantly constipation. So that you would have abdominal cramping, uh, pain, uh, periodically, uh, it comes in what we call paroxysms. It comes and goes, and then you have constipation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's one type. There's another type that's just the opposite. It's the same kind of pain and cramping, except it's associated with diarrhea. And then there's a mixed type where you have both of those. Uh, nobody really understands why uh, kids or adults have irritable bowel syndrome. We know that there is uh, no increased risk of other problems uh, later on. And sometimes when we say that, you know, a lot of times we we, uh, we want to reassure families if they're thinking, because everybody's in their kids are thinking about, okay, is this cancer? Is this something that they're going to have to deal with the rest of their life? Is it debilitating? Um and it can come across when we say, you know, this is this is not going to influence their lifestyle in any way. Maybe is blowing them off sometimes. That's certainly not what what I would do. Certainly not what most doctors would do. But IBS is not associated with any kind of malignancy or cancer or anything. What it is associated with is it affects everything that you do. Just because the, you really there's there's oh, yeah. that intense pain and cramping and the constipation. And if you have the diarrhea, uh, you know, portion of it, that can certainly interfere with 
with normal work and school. Uh, there are a couple of different medications that are used. Now, certainly, uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of, la- you know, laxatives in general. Uh, the osmotic uh, laxatives like Miralac, and osmotic just means they are pulling water in or holding water in the in the stool itself. Those are probably the safest long-term medications that you can use if you have constipation that's functional constipation or caused by something like irritable bowel syndrome. Um, okay. There are other laxatives that stimulate the musculature of the colon to contract those are the ones that you can get uh, you can get um, um, accustomed to that you can get sort of hooked on if you want to think of it that way although it's not any in any form like uh, you know pain medications but uh, uh, or narcotics or something like that but the ones that have senna in it those are the ones that sort of uh, that's the ingredient that causes it to to increase its motility now you can use other things like uh, you know some people will use the same some of the same osmotic agents uh, that you use to clean out the colon for colonoscopy, go lightly, those kinds of things. Uh, that Those work. They tend, in my experience, they tend to have a little bit more cramping with them uh, and bloating, and that's why Miralax, I like to use that. And you're right, diet is really key in IBS. People usually are able to, if they really pay attention to it, I usually, you know, if I have a patient with IBS, I'll say, keep a diary on what you eat. Uh, and really okay. pay attention to it because you may notice that certain foods trigger that. Certainly emotional things, uh, you know, stressors, that can set off IBS. Uh, now, 19, that's pretty stressful age right there. I mean, you know, high, <laughs> high school to college or work you know, transitions, those are big deals. Dating, yeah. I mean, that's that's a high st- – I don't want to go back to 19. Uh, so, <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> I mean, maybe physically active, you know, wise, but uh, other than that, no. Um, but, yeah, so so you sort of have to come up with your own, um, own sort of pattern of what you do, and you have to pay attention to it. I mean, that's sort of the drag, yeah. I guess, with IBF, IBS is you have to, you know, do that. So the if journaling it, may help. I yeah, and, and, you know, she's if 19, uh, a GI specialist may be able to help help you with that as well so uh yeah ibs pretty common again no long-term uh bad side effects like cancer but it is a horrendous thing to to try to uh get a hold of but it sounds like you know y'all are doing pretty good with it right now so thank you for calling jennifer we're talking about gi issues today let's go to uh eric who is on the road good morning eric hello thank you for calling eric what you got I, uh, I'm 49 years old, and I've been lactose all of my life, lactose intolerant. And it seems to be getting worse, though, as far as my digestive system. Um, you know, when I sleep, you know, uh, I don't have control of my uh, flatulation. So um, it seems at times if I'm sleeping, I, get, I have gas. Well, and it, you know, it gets wet. You follow what I'm saying? Right, right. Is there anything I can do to curb that? Will ginger help that? I heard ginger helps the stomach. Yeah, so so um, so lactose intolerance is fairly common. Um once you have it, you're probably not going to get over it. I know a lot of people say, well, I was lactose intolerant, but I, you know, I'm not now. Um, some things are confused with lactose intolerance. And, and what we mean is, uh, you know, lactose is a, is a sugar. 
that is in a lot of foods, certainly in milk-based uh, foods. And your gut uh, produces uh, a, an enzyme that helps to break that down. And um, if you don't have enough of that enzyme, then it stays in there. And again, it holds water because that uh, that sugar holds on to water. If you think about it, if your kids or you maybe sometimes this past Halloween, if you ate a bunch of sugar, uh, so a lot of people will get diarrhea. Well, it's because your gut can't handle that big load of sugar. You can do the same things, though, with fat and certain other substances that you eat. So the longer it stays in the in the colon, it'll, you know, it'll have that. And it can get to the point where you have the gas because excess sugar that's there, whether that's lactose or other sugars, uh, every single one of us has bacteria that are uh, that help to break down some of the foods that we eat that live with us uh, normally. Uh, that's a natural thing that uh, those bacteria. But if you uh, if you give them more stuff to eat, the if that sugar is around that you didn't digest, those bacteria are going to break it down. And guess what? They produce gas. Uh, so that's where that excess flatulence comes from. And it, you're right. It can get to the point where you can't hold it and you have a little bit of leakage uh, with that. Um, now, if you've been having it for you know a long time, 49 years old now, uh, it, if you've eliminated lactose from your diet, it may be something else. There are other enzyme deficiencies, or it may be a sensitivity to, to foods. Uh, you know, celiac is a big one now with, uh, with gluten sensitivity and gluten allergy. So there are both food allergies and food sensitivities where everybody's gut's a little bit different, and you may not be able to break down some of those foods. So uh, there there are some tests that look for that in the stool. So if you're having it, you know, if it's an everyday problem, I would probably say, you know, see a physician about that. But it is as careful as you can, really paying attention to what you eat and what happens later with a food diary can help sometimes where you can save yourself a, a, a visit to the physician. And a lot of those are just food aversions. Now, if you're losing weight, that's a red flag. If you're having fever, uh, that's another one. Uh, muscle wasting, if you've been diagnosed with uh, vitamin deficiencies, that's a problem that it might be another organ. Sometimes you can have pancreatic enzyme deficiency as well. A lot of people with uh, with longstanding diabetes or if they've had damage to their pancreas for whatever reason uh, would have a decreased enzyme levels that help break down fat and some of those other substances. So if it's to that point, certainly I would see a physician, maybe even a gastroenterologist. Uh, but if it's, you know, if it's just, if it's the more the irritating thing, I would really watch out about what you drink. There are some things that stimulate the gut uh, to help, you know, it, it moves things along faster. Caffeine is one of them. Nobody really thinks about that too much. So if you're drinking caffeinated drinks, particularly later in the afternoon or at night, I'd cut those out and see if it doesn't help you at night. So uh, irritating thing, Eric. So uh, hang in there with that. We're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to go to John in Philadelphia. We're talking about GI issues this morning on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And you can give us your call with your question or comment at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be right back after this.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about GI issues this morning, everything from diarrhea to constipation to reflux and Got plenty of time to answer any questions that you might have about the health of your children or your family. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. You know, those issues with, particularly with stool, uh, all ages can have problems with that. You know, it's inconvenient. You expect that with younger kids to happen sometimes. But uh, when it persists into adolescence, and that's a big issue. If you have constipation or diarrhea issues as an adolescent, uh, you think about all the ways that that affects things. And sometimes physicians will say, well, this is functional constipation. This may be IBS-related diarrhea. Uh, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal if they're, uh, you know, having accidents at school. Uh, people get labeled like that for life a lot of ways. So, uh, you know, it just, just giving them a little bit of symptom relief sometimes can be a great help. Let's go to John in Philadelphia. Good morning, John. Good morning, John. Hey, uh, I was calling my daughter. Uh, she's severely handicapped. She's 32. She had brain surgery about four years ago, and uh, now she can't control her bowels and tell you when she's got to go and stuff, and she can't speak. Well, uh, she started having diarrhea, and our local physician ran about a million tests. Uh, the last one he ran was a hydrostat or something like that. The hydroscan? Yeah, hydroscan. Yeah, and anyway, her uh, gallbladder was working at 4%. Mm. So he set us up with a doctor down to the university, one of the Flowood or somewhere, because um, she's high risk for seizures. And we went in there, and really, he talked to us for a minute, and he said it wasn't her gallbladder, that uh, that he thought maybe it'd be, it could be something else, but the thing that kind of threw us off was he said that uh, he wasn't a uh, veterinarian or a pediatrician because uh, he liked to be able to speak to his uh, he likes to be able to speak to his patients, you know. And I said, "Well, I'm sorry, my daughter can't talk, but you know, we take care of her. She's, I mean, she's severely handicapped." And uh, so, anyway. Uh, a local physician kind of got aggravated. I think he's got us another appointment because she's sick. You know, she's really don't feel good. Sure, and, sure. And she's, I mean, she really don't feel good. And and the diarrhea problem, you know, it's, I mean, it, it can be a handful. Uh, and, uh, I mean, she's not throwing up. But, uh, you know, I was just wondering what your opinion was because our local physician, he was, he was pretty aggravated and, well, I would be aggravated too. Yeah, I would be aggravated too. That's uh, you know, that's that's just not something you need to hear. Um, hey, I'm a pediatrician, uh, and I see kids. I talk to kids and families, and just because uh, your your child can't communicate things in a certain way, uh, the way I look at it, that just takes a, a, a better detective to figure those kinds of things out. And uh, you might need a better detective than what you, what you had the first time around. I totally agree with your main doctor. Um, 
neurologic delays or uh, other chronic health problems that have to do with the neurologic system in particular are frequently associated with both constipation and diarrhea. So uh, you and it, and it makes it harder, uh, John, just just the, for the same things that y'all were talking about, uh, because you you know a younger kid or an older kid that can't communicate exactly what's going on symptom wise, that's going to make it a little bit harder to find things out. One of the the strange things about the GI tract is that its nerve system is all when uh, in its development it's all twisted around. So uh, if you have point tenderness somewhere, uh, it may be caused uh, by something in another part of the abdomen. It's just what we call referred to a certain uh, place, and it can change with time. Now, there are some patterns in the textbook that can help you, but uh, you know that not everybody follows those patterns, and if you have a patient like your daughter that doesn't, if she's not able to do that, it can be very uh, very hard. Now, back to the HIDA scan. So on gallbladder issues, usually gallbladder issues aren't going to cause that type of symptom. So I can see how they were sort of saying, well, this is probably not the gallbladder, even though the HIDA scan was abnormal. So 4%, that's pretty low uh, on the HIDA scan. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that that's causing the diarrhea. And certainly, you know, that's a surgical procedure, even though it's a, a minor one for most people, including kids uh, or, or, a, or young adults. So um, so it's not a, as big a deal, but you sure don't want to have to do surgery if you don't have to. One of the things that I would suggest is is seeing a gastroenterologist, and they may want to do, uh, a, if you haven't had it done already, a colonoscopy uh, or uh, with biopsy. Uh, and this can be useful. Sometimes they'll even do a biopsy of the small bowel, too. They'll do an endoscopy from above and below. Uh, the endoscopy can help you because you can get tissue. You can get that colon tissue or small intestine tissue and, and really see if there's a problem. And we know now there's a lot of other things that can cause chronic uh, you know, problems like this, whether, that's, whether it's diarrhea uh, or constipation. And, um, and particularly on diarrhea, sometimes you can have deficiencies, again, of those enzymes. You can have chronic infectious uh, problems that uh, the lab may not be testing for. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, you may have to get some extra test on. Um, so all those things, I, I would, uh, you know, I'd get a second opinion. I agree with your, with your, uh, with your main doctor on that. If it's been going on that long, then you need to investigate it a little bit more, uh, just to see if, you know, if there's a problem there, uh, but uh, but just you know, it's it's uh, it it's not any excuse just because somebody can't tell you appropriately what's going on. You still have to figure that out. So uh, I know that's frustrating for you, John. Stick with it. Find somebody who will listen to you and be a good detective. Uh, hats off to your primary care doctor who's doing that. So thank thanks for the call, John. That's a difficult issue to deal with. Let's go to to uh, William in Columbus. Good morning, William. Good morning, William. Are you with us? Yes. Thanks for calling. Uh, I had a question about SIBO or SIBO, small intestine uh, bacterial overgrowth. I wanted to know how well known that uh, that test procedure is. Um, I went through it uh, one time recently and was dismayed that nobody could tell me very much about it. They had they they used a scale that ran from zero to a thousand. 
and my maximum reading at one peak was something like 21 or 22, and uh, which I thought automatically meant it was a low score. And uh, but a treatment was recommended, and I never could find out what. Uh, it, it's obvious to me. I know a good bit about physiology, and it was obvious to me that uh, uh, what they're thinking of. But how can it discern or distinguish uh, uh, a problem? Because my problem was not, I don't think, was at all related to the uh, to the test. And uh, while a colonoscopy was uh, was recommended at that moment, I wasn't able to uh, to make it such an appointment. So we looked at this as an alternative to see if it would tell anything. And it wasn't until afterwards that I began to to uh, wonder whether or not it had uh, sound application. Anyway, I wonder if you can tell me sure. if it can discern anything special because it, it tests your breath for uh, you take a... The breakdown products of the of the bacteria, right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a radioactive uh, right. a drink, I suppose, they give you, and then they hunt for the, for the radioactive uh, elements in the... Uh, uh, that diffuse out and end up in the blood and, right. and then in your breath. Yeah. So, so it's a uh, so uh, back to so. Do, what kind of symptoms were you having to have that test? Well, I had I had uh, uh, colorectal surgery oh, thirty okay. years ago, yeah. and uh, um, they said that I might have a problem with mucus. And all of a sudden, this spring, I started to have problem with with mucus. Uh, very. Uh, excess for sure. I hardly ever noticed any mucus, only rare occasions uh, in the past. It became, became a nuisance. And yep. so, and what I found was I, uh, Imodium, one little Imodium, uh, one or uh, a day uh, or half, twice a day, uh, brought it under control. But I found that out <laughs> just kind of by accident, just yep. trying to explore myself with yeah, I, you know, in your case, that may not be causing some of your symptoms. Now, now it's a real thing. So uh, normally you have bacteria in your large intestine, but you have you don't really have large amounts of bacteria in your small intestine. The things that can change that over time is if you damage part of your your GI system from uh, a number of things. So some systemic diseases can do that, like Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, type. Uh, diabetes can do that. Uh, surgery can do that. So in your case, I think that's probably with the colorectal cancer and the, the surgery that was involved with that. Uh, or even if you got, uh, you know, chemotherapy or uh, or radiation exposure, all those things can cause those bacteria to migrate from the large intestine. The large intestine is after the small intestine. They'll migrate back up into the small intestine. Now, the testing for that is is a bit imprecise. Um so uh, it's, you know, that's that's a little bit more controversial. Um, the treatment for it is to move those bacteria out of there, which can be hard to do because they may migrate back up. A lot of people would treat it with antibiotics or they'll treat it with uh, what's called prokinetic agents that move stool faster through the small bowel so that it doesn't have time to populate with bacteria. Um, but in your case, if modium helped, it's probably more, I, I'm, I'm going to take a stab at this, that this is probably 
due to some of the changes with the with the surgery uh, that uh, affected how your large bowel stores stool and absorbs water. Uh, you know, uh, appropriately. It is frequent if you lose part or, of your large intestine or if you lose all of your large intestine, you have liquid stool. There's no way for you to concentrate that, that stool to absorb that water back. So uh, if a, what the way Imodium is probably slowing things down a good bit uh, to where you're able to do that, uh, which would be sort of the opposite thing and when you think about it with a, a small bowel overgrowth syndromes, syndrome, so I, I would think in your case it's probably due to the surgery taking out part of the large intestine and its ability to, you know, to uh, to mobilize that extra fluid and, you know, an emodium here or there if you're having mild symptoms. In your case, not in everybody's case, uh, but that that's probably an okay thing to do. But, I, you know, if it were me, I, I, I don't know that I would put all the stock into that, uh, at least at this point, unless you had other symptoms that came up. So a difficult uh, detective question there, William. So uh, thanks for calling on that. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about GI issues this morning and uh, got a lot of great questions diving into the GI tract and uh, trying to see what's going on in everybody's life so we can get you some relief for you and your family. Let's go to Gerald in Coldwater. Good morning, Gerald. Hi. Thank you for calling. Okay. Uh, You touched on this briefly earlier about uh, pancreatic insufficiency. For 25 years, I was... uh, treated for uh, IBS, and it was mostly symptomatic relief, you know, like antispasmodics and diet modification, Uh, but uh, it just seems it would be symptomatic relief for a while, and then things would be back to business as usual, and it was alternating bouts of constipation and diarrhea. Uh, But uh, here recently, my gastroenterologist, one of his nurse practitioners, suggested that I try Zenpap because I might not be producing enough digestive enzymes. And that, I've been taking it for several weeks now, and it seems to be giving me a great deal of relief. So it's not always IBS. It could be something sure. like this. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, your pancreas, marvelous organ, has two main functions, breaks down food is one of them, and then it also produces insulin uh, to, to, uh, metabolize, uh, glucose or blood sugar in, in your body. Um, so, so you've just outlined what happens sometimes for whatever reason, some people can have damage to their pancreas from medications, from trauma, uh, to it. Uh, you know, uh, certainly if you, if you drink all a lot, you damage your pancreas. Uh, if you drink uh, alcohol, Plenty of different things, though. Sometimes, you know, different medications can have side effects to do that. Incidentally, if you're from the Southwest and you get bit by a type of scorpion in the Southwest, that's one of the rarer cases of pancreatitis and uh, pancreatic damage. So don't be uh, handling any Southwestern United States scorpions. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, the, then what you do if you have a deficiency in those enzymes, so the lipages, uh, lipases and uh, pancreatic uh, enzymes that help to break down those foods is you give them back. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people have this, uh, you know, it occurs in, in lots of different chronic diseases. Cystic fibrosis is one we've known about for a long time. Uh, part of the reason uh, that, you know, we always think about cystic fibrosis affecting the lungs 
but it affects all glandular tissue that has to deal with a with a chloride channel uh, and and mucus clearance, and that can affect the pancreas and its ability to for those enzymes to uh, to get out of it uh, to uh, to uh, go to the intestine where they're supposed to work. So in, in uh, cystic fibrosis, it's pretty common that we would give, uh, you know, those patients enzyme replacement. You mentioned one of them. There are several other uh, formulations of those enzymes. And you can titrate those according to, you know, how many calories you're taking in, what your weight is, and get it pretty close to where those symptoms that you mentioned can go away with time. And you're right. It's not always IBS. Uh, you know, if, if the usual, really the, the two things we would, I, you know, I would... Uh, look for an IBS. Is it is it run of the mill IBS? Is it pretty straightforward? And if you're having symptoms every day with IBS, uh, then then I would be looking for other things just to make sure you're not you know missing that. But pancreatic damage uh, over time, for whatever reason, can do that. And uh, those enzymes, the only bad thing about them is they're usually they're expensive unless you got really good insurance. Uh, so uh, covering for those can be a problem sometimes. But uh, you can usually titrate those a good bit another thing to uh, to watch out for as a red flag is ibs uh you don't lose weight uh, it is not something that where you have a malabsorption issue. Uh, so e- either if you're dealing with, with diarrhea or constipation or both, if you're losing weight or you have in, uh, you know, uh, uh, vitamin deficiencies, that is not IBS. There's something else going on. You should get that looked at. It's, it's an absorption issue of those nutrients. And those pancreatic enzymes, again, particularly the fat-soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, E, and K, uh, which can have, you know, all of those are very important in a lot of different processes in the body. If you have evidence of those deficiencies, you should look to the pancreas as one of the potential causes of that. So, Gerald, thank you for outlining that. Yeah, you need to think about that. If things aren't working, generally speaking, with your health, uh, start asking some questions. If your doctor's not uh, being that concerned about it, go to somebody else who will be and uh, ask for a specialist. You know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist really in anything besides hypertension. But uh, but uh, I like it when uh, when families ask me that. Sometimes I try to get uh, sort of dug in on things. Your physician may not want to admit that, but uh, you'll be amazed if you ask to go see a specialist about something. How many times they'll be like. Thank you so much for saying that. Sure, you can go see somebody as long as we get to the to the bottom of it. So, thank you, Gerald, for uh, for mentioning that. And uh, certainly, diarrhea is one of the more it's a harder thing to deal deal with. Let me mention um, reflux. Uh, you know, we didn't uh, have a whole lot of questions about reflux, but reflux in babies really common. Fifty percent of babies will have reflux, and by when I say reflux, that is not an abnormal thing. Again, we talked about that earlier in the program that. Uh, you know, that's a normal thing that kids do. It generally does not cause any problems. Uh, some of the things we look for as red flags when reflux becomes a problem is um, inappropriate weight gain. So if they're not gaining weight appropriately, uh, they're falling off the growth curve. Uh, they're underweight for their age. And if when they reflux, when they spit up like a baby will do, most babies, if you think about it, they go right on with their business. In fact, they can have milk or formula coming out or breast milk coming out of their nose or mouth. They don't seem to care too much. It's those babies that seem to be very irritated with that uh, that are uh, refluxing too much, uh, and it can do some damage long-term to the to the lower esophagus. But 
Reflux in and of itself, about 50% of babies would do that. Um, uh, if if you, It's a little hard to figure out who's refluxing and who's not, but if you observe them, at least 50%. It's probably more than that up until age uh, four months. By the time they get to a year age, uh, year of age or older, uh, about 95% of that reflux is going to go away, and you're left with about 5% of kids that do have problems. Sometimes uh, you can do just maneuvers about what you're eating. So when you eat, they maybe can change, uh, you know, just uh, the, the amount that they're eating or more frequent feedings. But uh, most of the time it's okay. Well, thanks to all our callers this morning. This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens talking about GI issues. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener is Sam Wells. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. You can join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.